This is Hashtag History Episode 67. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you are on the back end of our research process for this episode, aka if you are Leah... I don't... I'm not on the back end of research. What are you talking about? You're on the back end of our files. Okay. If you're Leah, (laughs) is what I'm saying, you are probably like, what the heck are we even talking about this week? I had to do some digging to be able to find a cocktail that was somehow related. So, So, yeah. So, although you all, as the listener, can see a very clear and concise episode title, which tells you exactly what we're discussing this week, Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite that generous on the back end, and I kind of left Leah guessing because... On the back end, my research folder was titled Turing slash Cantor slash Godel. The end. Sorry. Yeah. And let me just say, I did a Wikipedia, a wiki search of all three of them. And the only one I had ever heard of is Turing. So uh, let me just a little jump ahead here. That's what the cocktail is centered around. And I'm like, thank God. God, that's what you went with. Yeah. Okay. So th- this is my my public apology to you because initially my plan for this week's episode was to cover three incredible mathematicians: Alan Turing, Georg Cantor, and Kurt Gödel. All incredible mathematicians that all met very unfortunate deaths. I was hoping to kind of weave their lives in yeah. and out of one another. Mm-hmm. But the further I got into my research, the more and more I found myself shifting to cover pretty much totally and completely. Alan Turing. Mm-hmm. So that was my public apology for making you confused AF. Uh, it's honestly just luck that I was like, that's the one I know. Let me do center my cocktail around this. And that happens to be the one that you chose. Whew. I would say it's more than luck. I would say we spend too much time together and you read my mind. Yeah, that's perhaps. True. Perhaps that's what happened. Yeah. So for those that do not know, Alan Turing was an English mathematician responsible for the early development of algorithms, computer science, and artificial intelligence. He was also responsible for assisting in cracking coded messages during World War II, which quite literally resulted in the Allies winning the war. Jack Copeland, professor and author, has said that because of Turing's work, the war was shortened by more than two years, resulting in millions of lives saved. Turing would end up dying at the very young age of 41 as a criminal because he was homosexual. The father of the modern-day computer would end up being subjected to chemical castration and would die a very untimely, very unfortunate, and in some ways, very suspicious death. We'll get into all that, but first let's have a drink, which it sounds like it's going to be in honor of Mr. Turing. Yes. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History, the podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike, where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Firstly, the moment I looked into this topic, which when I was doing this initial research, mm-hmm. because I had very little idea as to what the f*** it was prior to this. Yeah, sorry about that. I thought to myself, <laughs> well, if that isn't a love letter to your math husband, your yeah. mathematician husband, I don't know what is. And I would be lying to say he he did not inspire the episode. And I would be lying to say he's not the one that has suggested over and over that I cover 
these mathematicians, at least one of these mathematicians. Right. So here's to you, Alex. <laughs> here's to you, Alex. He'll be so excited. <laughs> so I had heard of Turing because of the movie The Imitation Game. Yeah. Um, other than that, every single word you say to me today will be enlightening and educational. <laughs> Regardless, in Turing's honor, we are drinking a cocktail called the Newport Codebreaker. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it's an interesting looking cocktail, if I'm just being upfront. Yeah. Um, reminds me a lot of our Dorothea Puente drink, which was like orange juice and condensed milk. And a couple other things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So this contains tequila and rum. Both in equal parts. Advocat liquor, which is essentially a custard brandy Dutch liqueur. Which it sounds like when you had people over last week. I had I we me and one other person tried it and I mixed it with like rum or something, I think, and it was okay, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Um the other person just ate it with a spoon. So <laughs> let me just let me just put that out there that literally it, I looked up how to eat Advocat or drink Advocat and it says recommended eat it with a spoon. Interesting. Yeah, I know when she it's in like a liquor bottle, but it comes out like pudding, it's, like custard. Yes, it is a custard. Yeah, it's weird. literally like egg yolk. It's just weird to me then that it's in a bottle, like a liquor bottle. Put it in a custard container yeah i don't know so that's the questionable part really um and then it also contains cream of coconut which i I, I love coconut i love it too but you seemed like a little if if doubt about it i I was ifed out when i watched it come out of the bottle yeah thick yeah that was before the advocate though so the coconut probably looked like nothing compared (laughs) to the advocate and then oj your homemade oj my homemade home squeezed fresh out of my backyard oj yes fun fact Mm mm-hmm before we drink this concoction, the Bletchley Bar in London is a cocktail bar like no other, inspired by Alan Turing and his team of cryptographers. That's cool. In the venue's secret war room, you enter your mission codes into the high-tech, specially programmed cipher machine. Using decisions you've made along the way, the machine will convert the results into a cocktail <gasps> ingredients and com- complex recipes, which the bartenders then have to make for you. Oh, my God. The recipes will stay a secret between you and the agents, a.k.a. the bartenders. So it's like a giant puzzle room or okay, escape room. Okay, that is so cool. Yeah. Before it even opened its doors, the waiting list for this bar was already over 7,000 people, <laughs> according to the pop-ups website, which is which in true Turing fashion requires users to crack a code oh, to even gain access. That is so amazing. I love that. Isn't that so cool? I love that so much. I, I hope to be able to go one day because that's amazing. When I first was looking up like Turing cocktails, that's, that's how I usually like tried to start, yeah. start my research to getting cocktails. Um, th- that kept popping up was the Bletchley Bar. And I was like, what is this? That is so flipping cool. I don't know if they've survived through the pandemic right. or not. But yeah, I- they just opened in like 2019 or something like that. What a fascinating concept. Yeah. I love that so much. Anyways, uh, cheers. Let me know if you need the spoon to stir <laughs> in that. Or to eat. Advocate. And there are chunks of the orange from the orange juice. I, I love pulpy stuff. Okay. Cheers. Oh, it's not great. I feel like it's a drink that you can't smell it at the same time, right? Because the smell is bothersome to me. Yeah. Plug the nose. In. <laughs> oh, my God. Ooh. 
It's did, actually did, the more I drink of the it's like it's exactly like that um condensed milk one. Yeah, the more I drink of it. Did the, it make it better to plug your nose? I think it does. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm doing it. No, not for you. No, it definitely made it better. Yeah. I think part of it <laughs> Do I should I bring a bucket in? <laughs> Part of it is the smell. When yeah. I was bringing it up to my mouth, it, the fumes got in my nose. Yeah, your your stomach's already upset, right? Yeah, I've had like a FYI to listeners, I've had an upset stomach for like four or five days now, so probably not my best life choice. You're very right that the smell is gross. The smell is awful. I think it tastes fine. It's like not my favorite drink, but... Can we do a rating of smell and a rating of taste? Let's do it. Because if taste alone, like a six? Yeah, six, 6.5. Smell like a negative 12. <laughs> like a negative 12. Yeah. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> All right, I'm going to chug some with my nose plugged. Um, there is also a lot of liquor in there. Like it is... A shot and two, like two ounces of liquor. Like two different types of liquor. Two different types of liquor. In addition to the liquor that's in the custard. The custard liquor. Liqueur. Yeah. So, I mean. So, I, I definitely feel like, my chug. I definitely like breathe it out. Well, you know what? It, like when I breathe out, I feel the rum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah. All right. Okay. Did we have the same feelings on ratings? Oh, for sure. Like okay. six, 6.5. I mean, if you take the average of your smell rating and your regular rating, then it's like a negative something. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if we should do that. Did, oh, her stomach just growled. I'll be fine. Okay. I'll be fine. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Alan Matheson Turing was born in Maida Vale, London, on June 23rd, 1912, he studied as a child at St. Michael's School, and very early on, it was recognized that he was brilliant. In 1926, when he was only 13 years old and studying at Sherburne School, a teacher of his wrote that he, quote, has a considerable power of reasoning. He was a natural at mathematics. I think even the smartest of people still have to learn the rudimentary skills before they can really achieve advanced levels of study. But not Alan Turing. He was able to solve advanced mathematical equations without ever having studied elementary calculus. Holy shit. That's impressive. There's actually this really infamous picture that his mother drew of him when he was a kid. I've uploaded it here for you to check out, Leah. And I want you to tell our listeners what you see. Hockey or watching the daisies grow. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming it's showing people playing hockey off in mm -hmm. the distance. And then I'm assuming Alan, mm -hmm. like just... Totally, like, looking at the daisy, not playing, you know, looking at the flowers, not interested in the game, interested in looking at the world around him instead. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So that's a, a picture that his mom drew of him, and I think it perfectly describes Turing as a person. He was a bit of a loner. He didn't really thrive in social settings, but he was super, super brilliant. He would rather figure out the mechanics of daisies growing than play hockey with friends. He was actually a very athletic person, but he enjoyed things like running, which is obviously a more solitary sport. His interest in daisies or the mechanics behind them will actually come back later in his life. So just log that one away in your brain to bring back later. Mm -hmm. It was while Turing was at Sherburne that he developed what some historians have described as the most significant relationship of his life. 
he met another student who was roughly the same age named Christopher Morecambe. They were incredibly close friends with lots in common. They both loved math and science and astronomy. They would stargaze together pretty often. And Turing really considered Morecambe to be more than a friend. He actually wrote a letter to Morecambe's mother years later, and he said he quite literally worshipped the ground that Morecambe walked upon. Turing deeply cared about impressing Morecambe. It has been speculated by some historians that Morecambe was Turing's first love, and although it has been established that there was not a romantic nor sexual relationship between the two boys, it is clear that their friendship was a very intimate one and that Turing clearly had very strong feelings in regard to Morecambe. Hmm. This made it all the more devastating when, in 1930, when Morecambe was only 18 years old, he tragically died from complications of tuberculosis. Turing was absolutely heartbroken. They had hoped to go on to study together at Cambridge. In a letter Turing wrote to Morecambe's mother following his death, he said, I am sure I could not have found anywhere another companion so brilliant and yet so charming and unconceited. Turing threw himself even deeper into his work as, again, another quote, I know I must put as much energy, if not as much interest into my work as if he were alive, because that is what he would like me to do. He thought about Morecambe for the rest of his life, and he used Morecambe's memory as inspiration in all of his work. Turing ended up with a scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dang, I'm amazed and astonished. That was bad. Yeah, I do (laughs) want to do that again. You do it. Probably get a scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dang, I amaze astonish. That's brilliant. Is that right? No, that was great. Okay. For all our Hamilton fans, you know. You know. You know. But Turing ended up with a scholarship to King's College, where he was awarded first class honors in his studies of mathematics. Shortly after his studies here, Turing would publish what would become known as easily the most influential math paper in history. He wrote what is titled on computable numbers with an application to Enchi Dung's problem. Okay. I think I said that right. Okay. Sorry, folks. Before I explain what this paper was all about, I think we need to take a pause and consider the time frame. At this point in history, the word computer quite literally meant a person, more often than not a woman, that computed. Mm-hmm. You are a computer because you are a human that computes. Yes. It did not mean a device or a machine. So to summarize Turing's paper in layman's terms, he essentially introduced the beginnings of our modern day computer. He theorized that the computations being done by human beings could all be automated by a computing device. This research would become the basis of all modern day computers. If you pop open your smartphone right now, the SIM card operating your smartphone right now is doing the exact same thing that Turing described in this paper back in 1936. It's so crazy. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It's <sighs> watching the movie even, and I actually, even before... She's, yeah. She's plugging her nose while she drinks. <laughs> um, even before you had mentioned possibly doing this as an episode or whatever, I was like, I want to watch that again because mm-hmm. there's something so fascinating about a human being that invents something that literally changes the world. The world. Yeah. Like, it just speaks to the brilliance. Like, this is just another random example, but even just thinking of Hamilton, like, because we were just singing Hamilton, I think of Lin-Manuel Miranda every time I listen to Hamilton, just the brilliance of that. Like, he changed the world, too. Oh, for sure. Brilliance. 
natural talent, hard work, and experience, brilliance. Yeah. And I see that with Alan Turing as I well. I what that's like. What, what is that like? <laughs> <laughs> Turing would go on to get his PhD in 1938 at Princeton. In 1939, during World War II, Turing was recruited to be a part of the team assigned to breaking German codes at Bletchley Park, a top-secret estate that housed the World War II codebreakers. Alongside Turing were other mathematicians, British chess champions, crossword puzzle winners, you name it. I, and this is where the movie takes place. Uh-huh. The imitation game is, is it's basically this whole mm-hmm. time frame. Um, I love it. I love it so much. And I love just all the unique assets that each of these people bring to the team. Yeah. Because you have an absolutely world-changing, brilliant mathematician. And then you also have these super brilliant crossword puzzle yeah. winners. They are equally brilliant. Yeah. And bring something to the team. It's really, really amazing. Mm-hmm. During World War II, the Germans were using a machine called the Enigma to cipher and decipher messages. They considered this machine to be unbreakable and for good reason. The Enigma machine has 158 quintillion, 962 quadrillion, 555 trillion, 217 billion, 862 million, 360,000 different settings. And she had to, the way she wrote it out. I had to write it out. Like, instead of just writing the number on the piece of paper, she had to write out it out in a very funny way. I did have to. Because it's just so massive. Yes. I would not have been able to pull that out of my ass. No. I mean, who even knows what a f***ing quintillion is? Well, I didn't until I researched. So, meaning that the Enigma machine could be configured nearly 159 quintillion different ways. Yes. The German recipient of these coded messages would have an identical machine, which could then quickly and easily unscramble it. Without an Enigma machine, it seemed impossible to break the code. But Alan Turing said, nah, I could break that. Yeah. Which I think we should put that on a t-shirt. Nah, Nah, I I could could break break that. that. And then do a glass shattering. Oh, a cocktail glass shattering. A cocktail glass shattering. Turing believed that the only way to break the Enigma was to develop his own machine. And that he did. Within weeks of joining the team, he had developed a device called the bomb that, through the use of mathematics and algorithms, could decipher codes in minutes that would ordinarily take humans by hand weeks to decipher. I have a picture here of the bomb to check out. Um, I, I love this because this is, this is in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's literally a wall that is a computer. So there's... All these different like wheels turning, yeah. and it's literally like, oh, it's huge. Yeah. And this is comparable to our, I think this has the same computing power as like our, our smartwatches, yep. maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. By the end of 1939, the geniuses at Bletchley Park were using the bomb to decipher upwards of 39,000 intercepted messages per month. This number would more than double to 84,000 per month, the equivalent of two messages deciphered per minute. Mm. Turing was just brilliant, but with brilliant sometimes comes like a bit of an oddball. (laughs) Turing, for the most part, enjoyed his time at Bletchley because everyone working there was a little bit different. No one really fit into the quote-unquote normal crowd. But Turing was exceptionally unique. 
Some of his colleagues later spoke of their experiences working with Turing at Bletchley. One colleague shared that in order to avoid getting hay fever, Turing would wear a military gas mask while riding his bike to and from the estate. Mm -hmm. Speaking of his bike, this same colleague also told the story about Turing's broken bicycle chain. Instead of going to get the chain fixed, Turing would count the number of times he could pedal before the chain came off. That way, he would pedal just up to that number, then would hop off his bike, fix the chain, hop back on it. And he would do this over and over and over again. Oh, my God. Crazy, right? As opposed to just getting it fixed yeah. or replacing the chain, he would, like, compute how many times he could pedal before breaking the chain. And he would hop off before he broke the chain to oh fix it. My, oh, my gosh. When he wasn't riding his bike, he ran. In fact, another colleague shared that Turing would sometimes run the 40 miles into London for meetings. I'm sure he didn't smell good. He had, <laughs> he had the Rona stank. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure showing up to that meeting, like, really sweaty. Yeah. Turing actually tried out for the 1948 British Olympics and was only 11 minutes slower than the British silver medalist Thomas Richards. I'm assuming this is, like, long distance, because 11 minutes yes. sounds like a very long Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. in be, long distance. In long distance. And and to be someone that isn't a professional athlete, yeah. to only be 11 minutes slower than the silver medalist is pretty freaking amazing. Right, I'm just saying if it was like a 40-yard 40, 40 dash, that might be a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> that would be on <laughs> par with where I would line up. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be five minutes behind you. <laughs> so. Regardless of these eccentricities, Turing and the Bletchley Park team's contributions to the war effort truly cannot be overstated. Without Turing D-Day, which was the largest seaborne invasion in history and what really turned the tides, no pun intended, mm. for Allied victory would not have happened had the German codes not been broken. Sadly, the Bletchley team was sworn to secrecy given the classified nature of their work. Even following the war, they still were not really allowed to talk about what they had done. They were not praised nor recognized the way that they should have been. And for Alan Turing in particular, not only was he not awarded praise by his country for helping them win the World War, instead, he would be vilified by it. A duck blind on Real Foot Lake in northwestern Tennessee becomes the unlikely site of a double homicide. Then the suspect's body is discovered floating in the murky waters nearby to the scene of the crime. Maya Miliete goes missing from Chola Vista after a fight with her husband, leading friends and family to believe he might be involved. Tune in to Murder, Murder News, The Listen Edition every Friday for the biggest true crime cases making headlines each week. Subscribe to Murder, Murder News, The Listen Edition, wherever you listen to podcasts. Murder, Murder News. While working with this incredible crew of people at Bletchley, Turing met a woman named Joan Clark. Clark was also a codebreaker, doing the same work and holding the same status as her male counterparts, although, surprise, surprise, was making significantly less money than them and could only be promoted up to a certain point because, you know, like, uh, she's a woman. Yeah. She and Turing became really good friends. In fact, Turing even adjusted their shifts so that they could work together. After some time, Turing proposed marriage to her and she immediately said yes. He ended up revealing to her, though, his attraction to men, to which he said she did not appear alarmed by. 
As Clark would later reveal, she had long suspected Turing's homosexuality. I actually listened to an interview with her in which she said, naturally, that worried me a bit because I didn't know that that was something that was almost certainly permanent, but we carried on. They truly did love each other, although Turing's love was not of the romantic type, and Turing ended up very quickly realizing that it just simply would not work out. He ended up breaking off the engagement, but he and Clark would remain close friends until his death. I do think we really need to pause again to look at the time period and context here. As many historians have said, Turing could very well have kept his true feelings to himself and married Clark, choosing then to either suppress his true self or to have carried on a secret life on the side, but he didn't. And I find it really, really amazing his level of self-awareness and even self-dedication and self-love that he recognized that he simply could not be himself, that he could not be honest with himself nor with Clark had he followed through with the marriage. Yeah. In 1885 to 1967, homosexuality was illegal in England under this amendment to the criminal law amendment in 1885 that has a beautiful French name that I'm going to have Leah pronounce. La Boucher. That's exactly it. That the the la boucher, which is really bad. The way <laughs> you, that you I did do the it. Spanish R roll instead yes, of I the did. French <laughs> la boucher. Was that better? Yeah, that was better. Okay, that is that amendment. <laughs> <laughs> that one. That one. This law states that any male person who, in public or private, commits or is a party to the commission of or procures or attempts to procure the commission by any male person of any act of gross indecency with another male person shall be guilty of a misdemeanor and being convicted thereof shall be liable to be imprisoned for any term not exceeding two years with or without hard labor. (sighs) I feel like that's a run on sentence. It is 1 million percent a run on sentence. (laughs) This was actually the law that sent Oscar Wilde to jail for two years. Mm Mm-hmm. And so homosexual men in the UK lived in constant fear of the threat of imprisonment. And let's be real, like, not just the UK. This was everywhere at oh, this time period. yes, absolutely. We will definitely be getting into later on the United States response to homosexuality at this time as well. Yeah. Following his short-lived engagement to Clark, Turing just kept on keeping on kicking ass in the world of mathematics and computer science. In 1945, he designed the world's first all-purpose digital computer. It was faster than other computers available at the time and stored way more memory than the current models. Years later, he would write the first ever programming system. Like, how does a human being... Like, I can't even comprehend what is inside this right now. Yeah. I'm pointing at her laptop. (laughs) I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. No, I completely, this is the example that I use a lot of the time when I think of just like human brilliance, I use the example of Hamilton because I, I admire so much someone's brain that works like that and think of my own mind that like, I also love music. I also love lyrics and, 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 and history and, and history. Yes. I love all of those things, but the way that Lin-Manuel Miranda crafted it I am. I'm not at that level. One hundred percent. I will never. No. I you know. Mean, I'm, I'm not at that very level. Very few people are. Like it's so. And so when I think of just like human brilliance and the way that we're all different, and that there are some people that truly are just like superhuman, I oftentimes think of Hamilton. Yeah. I think of Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah. And I see that a lot. Like you're just saying right now in touring, like he was crafting computers. 
He solved mathematical problems without knowing how to solve them. Yes. Or being taught how to solve them. Yes. Just an absolutely natural brilliance. That's crazy. It's amazing. Yeah. He also wrote about morphogenesis. He believed and proved that there had to be a mathematical equation behind why tigers have stripes, why cows have spots, why daisies have five petals. What? Like, I know, because like when I look at a tiger, I'm like, that's cool that it has stripes. He was like, no, there's actually a mathematical equation behind why. The fuck? And he proved it. It's really neat how everything comes full circle for him. From that picture his mom drew of him studying daisies when he was a kid to him proving mathematical theories behind them. Yeah. In a paper he wrote called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, he delves into a whole section titled The Imitation Game, i.e. where the fantastic 2014 movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch gets its name from. In this paper, Turing wrote about the intelligence of a machine. This was actually a super controversial topic because, again, think of the time period here. It's the mid-1900s. Humans are super egocentric. We've come so far. Yeah, so far. We're nothing like that now. (laughs) (laughs) To call a machine intelligent is to challenge humankind and humankind intelligence. But in his paper, he tackled the question of if a computer can convince you that it is intelligent, who's to say it is not? And if a machine could convince a judge that it's a human, it is, by definition, intelligent. Mm -hmm. These theories made Turing a founding father of artificial intelligence. He would go on to be elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of London in 1951. Because of the controversy and notoriety surrounding this work, Turing, who had lived most of his life in the shadows, became, for the first time ever, a public figure. And that's what made the fall even harder. That same year of 1951, Turing met a man named Arnold Murray. From the story Turing told, he saw Murray on the street and said he looked hungry, so he bought him a meal. Although Murray was 19 and Turing was nearly 40, Turing was impressed with Murray and the way he asked inquisitive, intelligent questions in response to Turing telling him about his work. Turing ended up giving Murray his home address and Murray would come by and stay the night a few nights later. When they woke in the morning, Turing offered to pay Murray for the sex they had had the night before, and Murray instantly rebuffed this, saying he was not a sex worker and did not want to be paid as one. Despite this, Turing noticed that after Murray left, there were 10 pounds missing from his wallet. Of course. When Turing confronted Murray about it, Murray denied, but then asked for a loan of three pounds. And then later, asked for a loan of seven pounds. It sounds like this was a reoccurring thing cycle in their relationship Turing would notice money missing and accuse Murray of taking it Murray would deny but then would ask for more money and Turing would just keep forgiving him over and over and letting him stay the night again and again only in about a month after Turing and Murray had met Turing returned home on January 23rd 1952 to find that his house had been burgled Turing immediately reported this to the police when Murray came by a few days later and After they had had a couple of drinks together, Murray admitted that he had told a friend of his, a man named Harry, that he was seeing someone that was in the mathematics and computer science field. Harry, assuming this meant that Turing was loaded, burgled the house. The very next day, Turing returned to the police and provided them with this additional information. 
It was in this conversation that he had with the police that Turing revealed that he and Murray were engaged in a romantic relationship. He ended up writing a five-page statement explaining all about their relationship and how it had led to the burglary. And I'm sure this will come as no surprise that the police didn't give a damn about the burglary anymore. They had no interest in that crime any longer because they had another crime on their hands. One that someone just confessed to, quote, confessed to on paper in a five-page paper. Yes. The crime that they had on their hands now was the crime of being homosexual. Following this confession, Turing and Murray were both arrested and charged with gross indecency. I'm really impressed with you being able to say Turing and Murray because I feel like it's really hard. It is very hard. For Turing, who was pretty well known at this point, this meant total and complete public disgrace. Turing's options in response to being convicted were to either go to jail or to undergo hormonal treatment, otherwise known as chemical castration. Having been told that this treatment would only last a year and that the effects were reversible, he selected this option. The purpose of this hormonal treatment was to reduce his sex drive by injecting him with silvestrol, a drug that pumped synthetic levels of the female hormone estrogen into him. And for context, this is a drug that is no longer used today. The side effects of this quote-unquote therapy were dramatic. Turing saw an immediate change in his libido, a.k.a. he no longer had any sex drive whatsoever. His testicles shrunk, he began to develop breasts, and he was no longer able to achieve an erection, ever, for the rest of his life. The following information is not necessarily specific to Turing because it isn't recorded in historical records, but after doing some more research on my own, I found that other common side effects of this hormonal treatment are overall tenderness in the breast area, bloating, headaches, mood changes, nausea, and more. Welcome to one week out of four. <laughs> Welcome to one week out of four. Yeah. But I just think it's like short. Some people but do. But this is like caught like it's. I, I'm not saying it's I, okay. I, no, I know that. And I know also something to keep in mind is like there are some people that choose to undergo hormonal treatment um, and he did not. Like, no. I, I guess you could say he chose it, but his other option was going to prison. And he was misled into choosing Absolutely. It. So I think there's a difference in undergoing hormonal treatment when you elect to do so and when you're essentially forced to do so. Right. Following Turing's conviction, his security clearance was removed and he was never again allowed to offer consultation to the government communication headquarters regarding cryptography. Their loss. Their absolute loss. Their absolute loss. He was never again allowed to visit the United States as he was perceived as a major security threat. In the words of U.S. Senator Joe McCarthy in 1952, the U.S. State Departments must get rid of all homosexuals because they are, quote, morally weak, unquote, and, quote, easy prey, unquote. So I was only able to find this bit of information that I'm about to share in a documentary that I watched on YouTube. I wasn't able to find it anywhere else. But they said that Turing had taken up a lot of traveling in his last years, particularly one trip, which was to Norway. He really liked Norway, and he met a Norwegian man there whom he had had a romantic encounter with. The man wrote to Turing back at his home in England and told him he was coming to visit. But when he did, he was chased away by the cops. Alan Turing was such a security threat 
that the cops were staked out at his house. Oh, my gosh. Following Turing's year of hormonal treatment, he was never again the same. For some people, it can take up to nine months to return to quote-unquote normal. For Turing, he never did. In May of 1954, Turing and friends went to the beach together where they found a fortune teller there on the boardwalk. Turing went in to see the fortune teller, and when he returned to his friends, they said, this sunny, cheerful visage had shrunk into a pale, shaking, horror-stricken face. Turing never shared with anyone what the fortune teller had told him, but it clearly bothered him deeply. Only a few weeks later, on June 8, 1954, Turing's housekeeper found him dead inside his home. It appeared as though he had died the previous day and that his death had been the result of suicide. Nearby his body, they found a half-eaten apple that had been laced with cyanide poisoning. It was widely known amongst friends and family that one of Turing's favorite films was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which has caused many to speculate that he was imitating Snow White when she, you know, took that bite of a poisonous apple. Yeah. Many have speculated that his death was an accident, though. Evidence of this is a, a combination of a number of things. Turing had been experimenting with poisoning substances, so perhaps he accidentally ingested them. It was typical of him to eat a bit of an apple and not finish it before he went to bed. He'd written up a whole list of things he was going to accomplish the upcoming weekend, which, why would he do that if he had intended to take his life? And so on. Yeah. And then there are, of course, conspiracy theories that Turing was assassinated by the government, given that he was considered a security threat. I mean, they very clearly were happy just ruining his life and staking out his home. So I completely agree. I think it could be a number of things. Turing's ashes were scattered at the Woking Crematorium in Surrey, England, just like his father's. It wouldn't be until 2009 that the Prime Minister Gordon Brown would issue a formal apology on behalf of the British government. In 2014, Queen Elizabeth II formally pardoned Turing's gross indecency conviction. In 2015, a law known informally as the Alan Turing Law was established. It's a law that makes it so that other men can also retroactively be pardoned for their convictions under what are now outdated legislation that made homosexuality illegal. Alan Turing is now remembered all across England. There's a street in Manchester called Alan Turing Way, which leads to a bridge called Alan Turing Bridge. There are also statues of him, memorial plaques, and even as recently as March of 2021, the Bank of England revealed that they had placed Turing's portrait on the 50-pound note. Like, that, this in no way makes up for, for mm -hmm. it, but, like, how cool. Oh, I, I know. I, I agree with you that it obviously nothing could ever make up for what they did to him. No. But very, very, very cool that he's now on the 50-pound note. Yeah. Very cool. There is one legacy, though, that stands out above the rest. Now, this is just speculation. This has never officially been confirmed. But there is a very, very well-known logo that may or may not have been inspired by Alan Turing. So check it out here, Leah. Huh. <laughs> I am... Why, wait, hold on. Yeah. If you trace back the Apple logo far enough, it actually shows the guy sitting under the apple tree. The guy, the guy that is uh discovered gravity isaac newton. newton yeah so if you trace the apple logo back and back far enough it shows isaac newton sit sitting under uh -huh. like that it's an illustration of that but i get i catch the drift yes yes so 
when you're looking at it's it's a logo of it's an apple it's the apple logo it's the apple logo. which is an apple with a bite out of it that's yes. the current logo we know today yes but i appreciate you saying like there there are references to isaac newton there have also been references to eve like oh, adam yeah, and yeah. eve yeah, yeah and there have also been references to alan turing because obviously the creators of apple knew about alan turing and his mm-hmm. incredible contributions to computer science but sadly, this one is all just an urban legend. Right. Steve, Steve Jobs himself, when asked if Turing had inspired the Apple logo, was quoted as saying, God, we wish it were. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that, too. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Hashtag History. We will share the pictures that we discussed on this episode to our Instagram and all sources used to put together. The episode can be found on our website at hashtaghistory-pod.com. Subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use. Maybe use Apple. Maybe use Spotify. Maybe use Pocket Cast. Guess what? All of those apps are created as a result of this man. Anyways, whatever you use. Snaps to that. Yeah snaps to that whatever you use subscribe to us on there and then share about our podcast with your friends and your family and right back on apple Podcasts, give us a rate and review and then going back to instagram make sure you check us out on there at hashtag history underscore podcast and then as always join us over on patreon where for as little as a dollar a month you can help support our books and booze supply which really helps to keep the podcast going you get access to some behind the scenes content, bonus hashtag hangout episodes, and we mail you cards and stickers. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot I have to look at you. <laughs> I actually have to look at you That's for like the cue. The high five while not looking at the person. Like, wait. Were you actually trying? No, look away. I'm look. I'm trying. Okay. Oh my god! Were you trying? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is. Ooh. Oh, sorry. Alan Mathesis Turing, which hi his Mathis- middle name. Son. What did I say? Mathesis. Alan Mathesis. <laughs> what if I just put your voice for Alan Mathesis? Turing was born. I said Mathesis again, didn't I? <laughs> Matheson. So this Enigma machine, it could configure nearly 159 quintillion different formats. Mm-hmm. Or I-, I should say that again. Meaning that it can be okay. So this this machine. Thank you. So this enigma enigma. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so this enigma. <laughs> you want to write it? <laughs> you should see my audio on my end. It's, it's like just a black bar. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I just it, the straw. Spurred it everywhere. Sorry. <laughs> Turing and the Bletchley. <laughs> you have to wipe your mouth. That's gross. Her, hurry. Harry. I was mixing Murray and Harry. And Turing. And Turing. God, it's fucking confusing. <laughs>